jazz scene with a little bit of classic jazz thrown into the mix. Please join me every Friday from noon to two for Living Jazz with Thane Peterson. WJFF Jeffersonville. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Vets right here on Radio Catskill. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that our listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way we might learn something about each other. We sincerely hope to accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. Before we get started, as we do every fourth Wednesday of the month, here's Don Shaw, director of the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, with the latest updates from the VA today. So thank you so much, Doug, for allowing me to be on the show today. In conjunction with Suicide Prevention Month, VA Hudson Valley is raising awareness of its mental health resources that are available for our veterans. Veterans are driven and resilient but everyone needs help sometimes. Whether veterans are looking for peer-to-peer support, clinical care, counseling, or something else, VA Hudson Valley is here to help veterans through these life challenges. And if you're a veteran or a veteran supporter, there are many ways that you can reach out for assistance from VA. So first, you can call or text a friend or fellow veteran to talk about what they're going through. You can tap into VA tools to get help when when going through life's challenges. And one of the first tools we want to make sure everybody is aware about is our suicide prevention coordinators here at VA Hudson Valley. And Mark Lombardo is one of those coordinators and is here to assist any veteran that is in need of help. And he can be reached at 914-737-4400 extension 202490 and Mark serves all the veterans at VA Hudson Valley no matter what location and is here ready to assist. You can also visit www.maketheconnection.net where there's more than 600 veterans and family members who share their stories of strength and recovery can also call 1-800-MY-VA-411, which is also 1-800-698-2411. And that's where veterans, their families, and caregivers can easily access information on VA benefits and VA services that are available to them. And if you're a supporter, I encourage you to reach out, offer support, encourage veterans to get and ask for help when they need it. We are here and available at VA Hudson Valley. We also have resources to help veterans transitioning from the military or going through a difficult time in life. VA Solid Start connects veterans with qualified representatives who call three times during a veteran's first year of separation to walk through the benefits available. There's a self-check assessment, which is confidential, anonymous risk assessment that veterans can use to help them understand if and how stress and depression are affecting them. 
More information about this program can be found by searching for VA Solid Start online. Those are the key words to use. We also have the National Call Center for Homeless Veterans, which is a resource for veterans who are homeless or at risk of homelessness, where, where trained counselors are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Veterans do not have to be registered with VA or enrolled in VA healthcare to contact this National Call Center for Homeless Veterans. It's available to everyone. And that number is one 877 4 vet And that equates to 1-877-424-3838. And lastly and most important, if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, we have the Veterans Crisis Line, which provides free confidential support and crisis intervention 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. And you press 1, or you can text 838-255. Or you can chat online at veteranscrisisline.net forward slash chat. Veterans, again, don't have to be enrolled in VA healthcare or registered with the VA to use the Veterans Crisis Line. VA wants to be here for our veterans and provide the needed services during any time of crisis or challenging time in their life. So please consider using these resources and reaching out when you're in need of help. Thank you. Of all the features we present on this program, my favorites are our conversations with vets themselves. Tonight, we have the honor of sharing a chat with uh, Tom Brennan of New Milford, New Jersey. Tom's a Vietnam vet and continues to serve his community in many ways. Now, here's Tom Brennan in his own words. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Doug. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to be with you today on Let's Talk Vets from WJFF. Let's talk about your service. If you could give us a thumbnail description of when you were drafted or enlisted and, and what was your job in the, in the military. There's a couple of very interesting things in there, I think, huh? There are. There certainly were for me. I'm a, a 1964 college graduate. And uh, do you remember the Gulf of Tonkin incident, don't you? <laughs> yes, sir. That happened a couple of months later in August. Uh, I saw the handwriting on the wall and said, I'm going to sign up, which I did in September. And by October, I was at Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island in the United States Navy. Graduated in the spring of 65, got assigned to the only surface ship in the Navy that fired the Polaris missile. We didn't work with anybody else except the nuclear subs after they were uh, commissioned out of Groton in New London, Connecticut, and came down with the blue and gold crews, got two weeks with us. Each crew got to fire one Polaris missile down the Atlantic Missile Test Range, and uh, it was about the plushest duty anybody could ever get in the Navy, as far as I could see. So it was a training, but, a training mission? This was breaking the, uh, the nuclear subs into what, what their mission was going to be. We right, had the telemetry right. on board our ship, and that's what we did. It was great. Wonderful job. Got to see uh, Pearl Harbor, sailed out to the Pacific on one cruise and went to the Azores on another in the Atlantic. But I said, well, I'm not going to stick around in the Navy forever, so I want to see the uh, Mediterranean. So I, I volunteered uh, to do that. And uh, the volunteer office in the Pentagon said, thanks for volunteering. you got the skill set that we need for a new outfit that's forming up in California to go to the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. Oh, okay, I forgot. <laughs> Don't volunteer for anything. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah, rule number one. 
Yeah, and I had a very specific job that they needed filled. I was in charge of a certain segment of all the classified material on my ship. It was a job that nobody wanted, and nobody wanted to uh, have anything to do with it because there couldn't be any good could come out of it except you could get in trouble if I made a mistake. On the report, the commanding officer could get in trouble. The, uh, the, the officer that had to be my witness would get in trouble, so nobody wanted to know what I did. And that was scary for the first six months on that ship until I learned how to do it. And after that, I was comfortable with it. And it so happens they had that kind of a job lined up for Vietnam, and I had to figure out what we would need when we got to the Mekong Delta. We were a new Navy command called River Assault Flotilla 1, the first joint Army-Navy command since the Civil War. Brown Water Navy, huh? That's right, along with the PBRs and the Swift Boats. I left, uh, I left San Diego for Saigon. One week after Super Bowl one, and for all you football fans, when did we, what was the last Super Bowl we just had? 55? Spent 1967 there and flew home in uh, early February 1968 in the midst of the Tet Offensive. So those are, those are my bookend dates. That was a good time, my, good time to leave, huh? That was a very good time to leave, for sure. You know, Doug, being a communications officer, my, my morning newspaper was uh, Westmoreland's MACV headquarters daily summary of uh, yesterday's action in Vietnam. So I had my first cup of coffee and read that every day. How often did you sit there when you were reading that and saying, well, that ain't right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know what to think of it, except it was whatever action took place the day before. But having read it for a period of months, I, I knew that things were winding down. There wasn't anything going on. And that's when Westmoreland made that famous statement about it. He could see light at the end of the tunnel. And because of that, you know, that nationwide attack, I liken it to the, uh, the second biggest failure of intelligence in American history, uh, Pearl Harbor being the first and uh, Tet Offensive being the second. So I, I was lucky to come home during that action. When I got home, I mustered out of the Navy and uh, spent some time in San Diego partying with uh, some guys I went to OCS with. My homecoming was a lot happier than what happened a few years later, that's for sure. So that's, in a nutshell, Doug, that, that's my service. Okay, well, San Diego's not a bad place to party. That's for sure. Mission Beach, brother. Wow, it was great. <laughs> and we partied at a place called MCRD, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, with every junior officer around and every secretary and school teacher. Man, every Friday night, what a blast. And uh, it was all junior officers, and uh, we were all either just back from Vietnam, like us, or getting ready to go. And either way, we all wanted to get it on. Let me ask you this. Given the political and public environment at the time, I mean, you had people that really wanted to associate with you out there. Yeah, that was not a that was not a problem. Figure early February to April of 1968. And I think it was April when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it might have been May when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and the you-know-what had hit the fan. That's when things started to turn and protests started to happen and the, the college students took over Columbia University and things spread. In regard to that, too, Doug, this is a story that I've never had an answer to. When I left for Vietnam, I never heard of marijuana. And when I got home... A year later, it seemed to be in every college in the country. No, I've never, I've never seen a documentary or read a book that said anything about how that happened. And to this day, I don't know how it happened, but it was significant. And that was the dawn right there. And this was really before, before marijuana had really infiltrated into the combat troops. That, ha that started up a little bit later. I never heard of it while I was over there. During that time when, when racial tensions were high here, what was the in racial tensions in the military? I don't recall hearing about it being bad. First of all, I was in the Navy, 
Second of all, I was on a ship. We were on the Mekong River. So we were kind of isolated. And the Army troops, they were, they were billeted on our ships. I was on a barrack ship. That we had a full brigade, 2nd Brigade, 9th Infantry Division out of Fort Riley, Kansas. And we had the boats, and they had the men, and we'd, we'd drop them off wherever we had to take them for search and destroy. I'm not aware of it. Never heard of it. Nope. Well, when you say a ship now, and you say Macon River, I mean, how big was this shift, and how deep was the draft? Well, it was deep enough for what, what we were on, which was probably, uh, I guess it was close to 300 feet long. Wow, that's a big ship. It was a big ship, yeah. We had plenty of protection. The uh, the boats that we we had, most of which had been made for us in California, but there were some of them, apparently, that had seen duty on the invasion of Sicily. I don't think we had any from the Normandy invasion, but some of the boats, I was told, had actually seen duty in World War II and then converted into uh, something pretty powerful, plus... The boats were heavily armored. The Monitor boat had an 80-millimeter mortar. It had a 40-millimeter cannon and a couple of 20-millimeter cannons, 50-caliber machine guns. That thing was huge. That's a fair amount of firepower. It, it damn sure was. We were a powerful little navy, for sure, uh, on the Mekong River. We were probably 50 or 60 miles up the river, and that's where we pretty much stayed. There were only two crews of River Assault Flotilla 1, and uh, after I left, uh, I know they got all the way to Cambodia. Uh, Mekong River is one of the largest in the world, uh, as is the Delta, supporting it. Uh, at the time we were there, the estimates were that there were 80,000 Viet Cong in the Mekong Delta. You'd think they'd be easier to find, but they weren't. <laughs> so when we originally uh, started to talk about this, this joint force that you were involved with between the Army and the Navy was the only one since the Civil War. Is that correct? That is correct. <laughs> it took me a long time after I got home to say, gee, I wonder what the first joint Army-Navy command was like. Did you ever find out? Yeah, it was on the Mississippi River. It was uh, a decision made by the Union to split the Confederacy by controlling the Mississippi River. And they formed it up on the Ohio River. And uh, Ulysses S. Grant was a commander. I don't recall who the Navy commander was. And it took them the entire length and time period of the Civil War to make it from the Ohio River all the way to New Orleans with some mighty big battles because every place they went they came up against fortified positions along the river that the Confederacy had. And, of course, the Confederacy could see them coming. Whether they were two years away or a year away or a month away, they could see them coming, and they were well prepared. And, boy, it was a huge flotilla. And those crafts, had, the craft that they were using didn't have the firepower that you're describing, nor the ability or agility to navigate quickly, right? That's true. Uh, they had heavy mortars with them, the the kind of mortars that, they, you know, the ones that were like four feet across, and they towed these barges down, and they would mortar the positions that the Confederacy had. Yeah. It was remarkable. And what we did, I, I think, was easy compared to what they did. I found a book on that very subject, and it was just remarkable, a wonderful well, I think if you could go back and talk to some of your shipmates of that time, they'd probably have some of the same complaints, huh? I could be, <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, Tom, you've done some writing. Let's talk about that. I mean, we know that the creative arts is a tremendous tool. It allows folks to finally get out into words, maybe what was in their heads to organize things a little bit and to maybe lend a little bit of clarity to what they're thinking. How did you come to start writing? And let's uh, hear some of your work. Well, it's it started, um, I guess, 35 years ago or so, just uh, wanting to get something down on paper. The, the thing that triggered it for me was uh, playing golf uh, near where I lived uh, in Suffolk County 
and getting paired up with uh, an 83-year-old guy who was a B-17 pilot flying out of out of England somewhere doing early morning bombing runs over Germany. And I got to talking with him, and uh, that turned out to be the first story I wrote, which I shared with uh, a Navy SEAL high school classmate and childhood friend whose wife's father had been a B-17 pilot. But that made me start thinking about other stories. And uh, so slowly, I started writing those down. Let me share the first one in the series, okay? Yes, sir. I call it Chris Kringle, 3-3, Memorial Day, 2006, Calverton National Cemetery is on Route 25, just past Ridge in eastern Suffolk County on Long Island's North Shore. It's the second largest national cemetery in the country, and it's most active. There are more than 200,000 plots at Calverton, and most of them are already occupied with veterans and family members. I moved out this way not long ago, and now that I live only about 15 minutes away, today will be my second Memorial Day visit. Remembering last year, I've decided to get there early to watch the crowd file in and ensure a seat up front for the ceremony. I'll tell you what, if this isn't the first day of summer, it's got to be the last day of spring. Good thing I put on the SPF 30 this morning because it is going to be hot and we are going to broil sitting out in this sun. The flags are flying as I slow for the entrance and a New York State trooper holds the westbound traffic to let us pass. Policemen and teenagers in military uniforms direct the line of cars toward the parking field. And I have to smile when I notice that some of these boys have CTF 117 on their uniforms. Why? That was the designation of my outfit in Vietnam's Mekong Delta in 1967 when I was there as part of the commissioning crew, a plank owner in Navy parlance, of River Assault Flotilla 1 also known as Commander Task Force 117. You heard of the PBRs, right? And the Swift Boats? Well, we were the ones you didn't hear of, the first joint Army-Navy command since the Civil War. And I was a Lieutenant J.G. Watch Officer in the Joint Tactical Operations Center. As I pull into my assigned slip, I notice the pickup next to me has a Vietnam veteran bumper sticker on the rear driver's side. The windows are open, and a man about my age and a woman have just started lunch. Uh, what the heck? Hey, whereabouts were you in Vietnam? I ask innocently enough. And barely looking up, he says, Well, I was with the 9th Infantry Division in 67. Hmm, really? Could this be? 2nd Brigade? And with that... He stops looking at his sandwich and looks at me. Yeah, that's right. Were you part of the Mobile Riverine Assault Force? Oh, now he's definitely interested. Uh-huh, he says, trying to figure this out. What did you do anyway, I ask, and he says, I was a platoon radio operator. Hey, you ever hear Chris Kringle 3-3 on your radio? His wife is staring at me now. Yeah, sure, all the time. Why do you ask? Because that was me. Have a great Memorial Day. The end. <laughs> oh, that's a great the story. And that I had had for 30 years. I always wondered. I knew that my job was talking to the, the boat commanders that had just dropped off the, uh, the Army guys. That's who I was talking to, except I knew I was talking to the Viet Cong, too. Yeah. And not only that, I... I found out later on that we were talking to a new United States security agency, something called the National Security Agency, the NSA. Yeah. The NSA. Even the senior officers in 67 had never heard of the NSA. But it, it was like 20 years after I left Vietnam, I said to myself, gee, I wonder if the Army was listening. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Right. And now I'm talking to a platoon radio operator of 2nd Brigade 9th ID. I couldn't believe it. That is amazing. I, it's it's a, a small world. 
A small world indeed. Yep. So I found out. Yeah. He said, yeah, sure, all the time. I said, well, of course they listen. I mean, they could figure out stuff. Yeah. You know, they knew the boat, whatever boat they came in on. And the, the lieutenant and the captain knew that that meant them. If, if I called out to Smoke Jumper, this is the Chris Kringle 3-3, their ears would perk up because they knew that that was the, uh, the boat that they came in on. And I'm going to tell them something that might pertain to what the Army boys are going to have to do. That's so, a great, yeah. great story. Great story. So um, you, you got a couple more for us, I think, don't you? I do. Well, you, you want to hear it? Yeah, set them up first, okay? That was Memorial Day 2006, okay? Yep. Fifteen years ago. At that time, we were five years into Afghanistan 15 years ago. And I remember hearing, it may, it may have been a, a four-star on Joint Chiefs of Staff, who answered a question from a reporter about what are the similarities, uh, if any, between Vietnam and Afghanistan. And the answer was, there aren't any. I was immediately, instantly reminded of a quotation from a man named Ho Chi Minh, the father of Vietnam. In the midst of uh, the American War, you know what the American War was, I hope? Yeah, it's the same as the, uh, the, the guys down south refer to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. Right. We call Vietnam the Vietnam War, but they called it the American War. Gee, I wonder why. Anyway, in the midst of that war, Ho Chi Minh was quoted as saying, if we don't lose, meaning North Vietnam, if we don't lose, we win. And if the Americans don't win, they lose. And that's what happened. And lo and behold, here we are today, this very day, of what I thought back then in Afghanistan. This looks like a lot like Saigon a few days after the fall of the city, for sure, in 1973. Well, Joe said it isn't, though. I mean, Joe Biden said it's not, so I'm not so sure. But uh, you may be right. I think I'm right. <laughs> Joe Joe wasn't there. He wasn't? That's surprising. No, he wasn't. Yeah. I was being facetious. I, I don't want I don't want by any means to belittle the loss of life of American servicemen in Afghanistan. No. However, I do want to make a comparison that the total killed in action in twenty years in Afghanistan is a little over half of what we lost in the two-week Tet Offensive. 4,000 Americans killed during the two-week Tet Offensive. 2,500 in Afghanistan? Yes. Well, and, and, and when you think about in terms of Vietnam, you go back, I just did some work not too long ago on a, on a story. And in fact... Um, I think it's officially 58,140 or something like that, official number for uh, combat deaths in Vietnam. But if you fast forward to today or not too long ago, accounting for all of the um, deaths that are linked to either injury or Agent Orange or suicide, we're up around 350,000. Really? Yes. That I didn't know, Doug. Including the 58,000, but we're up to about 350,000 if you take all of the uh, the uh, deaths that are as a result of that war. I know one right here in Warwick, where I live. I, I knew the young man's uh, sister, who, who herself passed away recently, that uh, he went off to war as an, a 19-year-old and... Uh, a good boy, a good student, a good Christian churchgoer, and he worked in graves registration in Saigon. And I said, "Oh my God!" Well, we had we had times when there were two hundred a day being killed in Vietnam, and to think that that was his job as getting those those dead soldiers sent back to the states. And yes. He got back, drugs, alcohol, failed marriage, all screwed up died young. Absolutely. He's one of those 350,000. Yes. How about another story? You got another one queued up? I do. Okay. This one I called 
like an old hunting dog. The short, stocky former Marine, now in his late 50s, I guessed, sat next to me when it was time to share thoughts and feelings about our military experience with the rest of the group. There were about 25 of us at this monthly gathering of Veterans Heart Georgia, a service organization reaching out to vets and their families in the Atlanta area, dealing with PTSD, and I'd been one of the speakers during the meeting. A month or so earlier, on Veterans Day 11-11-11, I'd had the privilege of flying to Washington with a Long Island contingent of Vietnam veterans on a trip sponsored by the History Channel, Honor Flight Network, and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund for the ceremony at the wall. There was also a dinner for us that night, along with two other groups from Philadelphia and Atlanta. Honor Flight's been flying World War II veterans to Washington for years to visit the World War II Memorial, and this was their first such trip for Vietnam vets. Following a presentation I made at the dinner, Bill and Kay, the co-directors of Veterans Heart Georgia, introduced themselves and invited me to speak at their December meeting. After a few other veterans in the circle spoke about their time in the service, the Marine sitting beside me described being stationed at Kanchen and Kaesan. And I realized with a chill, which I just got again, that he'd been in the bush in the thick of it back then. As he got more into it, he told us a funny story, but one tempered with mentions of the multiple wounds he'd received too. I'd noticed beforehand that he walked a little stiffly and now I knew why. His account captured our attention and it was clear to everyone wanted to hear more because he'd obviously been part of the battle-hardened tip of the spear. He went on to tell us that even though he'd been out of the Corps for years and had a wife and family here in Georgia, our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan had called out to him, and he yearned to return, to serve again, to be part of it again. So he volunteered to rejoin the Marines, but they turned him down. I can still help, he said. I can cook. I can fold laundry. I can load ammunition. But the answer was still no. He lowered his head as he spoke, more quietly now, and I know we all felt his desire and his disappointment. There was a brief silence before he finished by saying to himself, I think as much as to us, you know, like an old hunting dog, I can still go to the sound of gunfire. I can still go to the, to the sound of gunfire. It's men and women like this, America, who've kept us free and secure. So thanks for your service, Marine. And to all those who've served, thanks, one and all. That's a great story also. Very well written. You have a gift. I, you know, when he mentioned that he told us a funny story, he, he had been wounded at least three times. They sent him back to the States early from Quezon, and eventually from California, they sent him back to a base in South Carolina to serve out the remainder. He had, he had like six months left. And, and when he got there, <laughs> he had to check in. Check in at the base with a staff sergeant who was harried and busy doing many things. And, uh, okay, you, uh, all right, we got to give you something to do. Uh, I, I need somebody at the front gate to, uh, to check people in. Uh, you can do that, right? And he said, uh, I'm sorry, staff sergeant, I can't do that. I can't salute. The, the, something happened to my elbow, and I can't do that. I said, all right, uh, let's see. I need fire watch. You, you can do fire watch and, and march around the base and make sure everything's okay. I, uh, sorry, Staff Sergeant, I can't do that. Uh, my leg's shrapnel. I can't. And the Staff Sergeant, all right, then. What, what can you do, Marine? And, and he said, uh, well, I can kill you in the bush, Staff Sergeant. And after <laughs> that, they let him. <laughs> 
Oh. <laughs> Ooh, hey. Yeah. He yeah. And kill you in the bush, and I bet he could. Yeah. That was Veterans Day 11 11 11. And I was part of the, the first flight of Vietnam veterans along with uh, a group from Philadelphia and Atlanta. Atlanta. There were 180 of us there. And I got to be the keynote speaker that night and I, where I read two of my stories. And I got to do that because the Long Island coordinator was a friend, uh, a guy that I had worked with in county government in Suffolk. And he was a 1972 West Point graduate who I stayed in touch with. In fact, I shared all my stories with him, which he has then shared with all his platoon mates from West Point. And they liked him. Well, and, it, and what's good is you're talking to an audience that were contemporaries of yours and involved in the same battles and conflicts, or at least during that time. And, and regardless of that, there are certain things which are common to all military service. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our guest tonight is Tom Brennan, who is about to tell us another one of his stories. So you got one more for us, Tom? I got one more. This is the, uh, the last story in the series, but it's actually where it all began. This one I call the train station. I was standing in my baby carriage, just shy of three years old, trying to bounce it up and down as my mother stood at my side, hand on my shoulder, holding me steady. It was the autumn of 1945. And we were at the east end of the train station, south side of the tracks in Sayville, New York, on Long Island South Shore. Just to our right was the railroad crossing at Lakeland Avenue, the street where my father had been born some 27 years earlier in a little house not 200 yards from where we waited. He'd worked at this station for a while, and his dad, my grandfather, was still the station master in Bayshore about 15 miles west on the same line, where he and Grammy lived in an apartment above the ticket booth and waiting room there. Mom glanced at her watch and stared anxiously down the empty tracks to the west. She was all dressed up for some reason, and I wore my short pants blue suit and matching hat with the short bill. Then a train whistle shrieked in the distance, a sound I knew well from my visits to Grammy and Gramps, and coming around the bend, we saw the locomotive billowing clouds of smoke from its coal and wood-fired steam engine as it slowed for the stable station. Hissing and clanking, the huge engine came to a stop just opposite us, and immediately people began hopping off, headed for the parking lot or the few taxis waiting for fares. When the crowd had dispersed, I saw a man standing on the platform, a big bag next to him, looking our way. He shouldered the worn duffel, and as my mother's grip on me tightened, began walking towards us. He was tall, broad-shouldered, strong, and good-looking, with wire-rimmed glasses and a dark mustache, wearing an army greatcoat over a uniform shirt and tie, an overseas cap raked stylishly to one side. I watched, astounded, as he took Mom in his arms, holding her close, kissing her, embracing her, and then he swept me up, bear-hugged me, and I felt the bristles of his mustache on my face. Hello, son, hello, Tommy, he said, holding me high as the train lurched and headed east down the line. My daddy was home home from the Pacific, home from the war, unscarred, safe and sound, back to his wife, to his hometown, the rest of his life and the son he'd never seen before. Mommy, is he coming home with us? I asked uncertainly as my mother told me decades later. Yes, Tommy, she whispered, squeezing dad's hand. We're going home together. And so we did, my very earliest memory etched in my heart forever. 
And that's got to be the way a lot of stories begin for a lot of kids. My earliest memory of my father, which I read at his wake. And a few years later, I read it at my mother's wake. And for some reason, it was only then that I realized it was not just my first memory of my father. It was my first memory of my mother as well. I don't know what the hell happened to me that had never crossed my mind. But that's my first memory of my life is the day my dad came home from World War World War II. Wow. Pretty amazing. Yep. They were yeah. the greatest generation, to be sure. That they were. Yep. I wonder what they're going to call us. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I've been called quite a few things in my life, so. <laughs> uh huh. So it depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I agree with you about that bond. I mean, that that's been the nature of all these stories. I, I've had interactions uh, that took five seconds and put both of us in tears. I mean, it's amazing. Yes. It's amazing. Yep. This is true. So, uh, listen, so what are you doing these days? What are you, you're involved with uh, American Legion or VFW? Uh, American Legion. I'm first vice commander of my post uh, 214 here in Warwick. Okay. Uh, the, the Nicholas P. Lasando Jr. post, and I only learned re recently that my Warwick post is the only one in New York State named for a service member killed in action in Vietnam. How about that? The only one in New York State named hmm. for a young soldier killed in action in Vietnam. I had no idea. So I've been there for a couple of years now. Uh, I only moved up from Long Island seven or eight years. Time is flying, as it does when you get older. I, I assume all you old guys out there, time flies, <laughs> get older. I'll speak for yourself, Tom, okay? <laughs> well, even you remember when summer lasted <laughs> oh, for a year playing ball. I, like, <laughs> yeah, sad, sad to say you're right. Yeah, back in the days when you could ride, you wouldn't. I'd say, Mom, I'm going up to the ball field. Okay, be home for dinner. Yep, yep, that's right. You go on your bike. <laughs> I don't know if kids are allowed to do things like that anymore. No, they're not. Things are... I'm a lay servant in my my local United Methodist Church here in uh, New Milford, uh, which was built in 1838, and we still have the original sanctuary, uh, which was constructed on a on a gift from uh, a retired uh, colonel in George Washington's Continental Army. How about that? So that's got to be up uh, near uh, where near Greenwood Lake. Yeah, we're we're uh, let's see, we would be northwest from Greenwood Lake. Yeah, when and you Greenwood say New Lake, Milford, that's out of Warwick, right? So you got to go up the hill, right? Yeah, and New Milford is a hamlet of uh, Warwick. Uh, which New Milford was the happening place before the railroad came to Warwick and made dairy products available to the growing city of, of New York. And, uh, and Warwick became big time, and now New Milford has uh, receded back into just a, a lovely little community. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm president of the New Milford Historical Society, and I'm also a board member on the town of Warwick Historical Society, where I get to play the part of George Washington. Well, it keeps uh, you busy, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, the most recent was a couple of weeks ago when the uh, society put on George Washington Day 5K race, uh, a road race. It was fun. And I was there from start to finish of that in costume and uh, a lot of fun a wonderful place warwick is uh is a good place a good village but did you did you finish first tom <laughs> 
If I was competing by myself, yes, I guess I did. Just standing <laughs> around for the winners to come in. I mean, it'd be a little I tough. Did. It'd be a little tough to run dressed as George Washington. Yes, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, so there's still some writing, some speaking engagements, and more things that I want to do. All right. Uh, hey, I'm 78 years old now. I'm still playing golf. Well, that's and, good. Uh, hitting them whenever I can. Hey, listen, yeah. listen, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, and if you don't want to answer this question, that's fine. But I need to ask you as a Vietnam vet, and the similarities you've already pointed out between what's going on, especially now, becomes very, very much more poignant in the last couple of days in Afghanistan. Yeah. What, what, is, what is your opinion of what this uh, hasty withdrawal, apparently without any kind of a plan, just kind of by the seat of your pants, has left... A lot of folks uh, flapping in the wind at, uh, at at great risk. Could it have been any different? I mean, I heard somebody say that on TV last night, an 82nd Airborne uh, woman who'd been there 10, 11 years ago. Seeing the guys she worked with, they thought it back then. This is going to end badly. But I, I want to give you a perspective on, uh, on Vietnam. I don't know if I stand alone on this, but I, I'm pretty sure I don't because I've got some pretty solid feedback from a from the Rand think tank in Washington DC uh, to support it anyway I'm working on stories uh, I have two of them regarding Vietnam namely first story is why we lost in Vietnam and the second one is why we won in Vietnam and although that may sound contradictory just to do it very briefly let me put it this way. We lost in Vietnam because Ho Chi Minh wrote to Harry S. Truman at the end of World War II to please don't let, don't let the French come back in and start up their colonial empire again. We, we had to deal with them. And then in the beginning of war, the Japanese took kicked them out and they took over and now they're gone. And seven times he wrote to Harry S. Truman. And Truman's response basically was, well, they were our allies in World War II, and we really can't, you know, and, and he mealy-mouthed it, and they didn't do anything to help Ho Chi Minh. And it was a couple of years later before the French got their ass kicked at Dien Bien Phu in North Vietnam. But that was strike one, as far as I'm concerned. Strike two happened at the Geneva Accords in 1952, when everybody was trying to decide, well, what do we do about this country, this Vietnam? And uh, why don't we have an election and let them decide for themselves? And all the nations there agreed except one, the United States, who said, no, 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 we can't do that. He's a communist. He'll get 95% of the vote. Well, he will because he's that popular. No, we're going to partition the country and divide it north and south. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you had a chance right there to uh, unify things. To me, that was strike two. Strike three happened in 1963 when the CIA engineered a coup of the duly elected government in South Vietnam where the president and vice president were assassinated. Strike three, you're out, America. To me, that's why we lost. And the second thing is how we won. The reason why were we in Vietnam, anybody, huh? Anybody remember something called the domino theory? Anybody? Yes. Domino theory? That's why we're in Vietnam, because if Vietnam falls, all the countries all the way down to the tip of Australia are going to go communist, and it's going to move east or west, rather, all the way to India. They're all going to go communist. we got to draw the line. So guess what? None of that happened. We did what they sent us there to do, which was to prevent the domino theory from happening. So we won. My brother brought that up <clears throat> to a guy, the guy, a lieutenant, army lieutenant who wrote Hamburger Hill. Remember that movie? Yes, I do. That was a lot better than it got credit for as far as I was concerned. The, the, the waste of time of fighting for some freaking hill just to see... If we could fight for it, if we could win. Uh-huh, yeah, Hamburger Hill. And he was a member of the Rand Think Tank. 
And he said, you know what? That's the conclusion that we came to as well in the RAND think tank. That we did what they sent us there to do. So I thought, well, why the hell have we been allowed to think that we lost? So for all those Vietnam veterans out there, hold your head up, okay? We did what they sent us there to do. Thank well, and I would, I would uh, echo that message to the folks uh, who served in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, for that matter. And, That's right. Uh, perhaps you're right. Perhaps it inevitably had to end this way. So, Well, Tom, yeah. thanks very much for your time. You're welcome, Doug. It was great talking with you. Our friend Gavin Walters manages the Ulster County Vet-to-Vet Office in Kingston. On Sunday, August 29th, Gavin and 12 other veterans departed Kingston for the second annual Walk a Mile in My Shoes event. This 56-mile walk arrived in Albany 22 hours later to bring attention to the 22 veterans who take their own lives each day. Well, welcome once again, Gavin Walters, to Let's Talk Vets. Yes, thank you for having me. You just completed your second annual Walk a Mile in My Shoes, and that's what I called you about. Find out how it went. It was uh, amazing because it was the same thing, same theme, just new group of individuals walking. But this time we actually, I think, added more to what we did last year where we had the Red Cross. Dustin Chavez is the director of the, the Eastern Division Red Cross, and he actually drove his Red Cross van as well as walked with us. So he actually stayed up the whole 22 hours when we're walking. So that really uh, just showed how much the community was is willing to be with us. So more people were aware of it this time, would you say? Yes, I definitely will say that. Yeah. And uh, you completed it on schedule in 22 hours? Actually, we did. We actually could have beat our time like last year, but uh, we wanted to make sure that everybody, you know, was able to get it done. And the representation behind, you know, 22 hours, as you know, it was very significant. So we did keep it in that time frame of 22 hours. Well, just let's remind everybody what that uh, walk is about and what the significance of the 22 hour figure is. One of the biggest things sometimes is actually talking about like what's happening with the military community, like what we're experiencing, you know, mental health, uh, feeling depressed, feeling hopeless, the physical and mental strain of going through a physical walk without sleeping, trying to get through like each mile, uh, each step, getting blisters, just different things hurting them. But the whole premise of it was actually showing the support of law enforcement, the Red Cross, the community. And from that, that actually helped and encouraged each individual, as well as the individuals that actually was walking, where they're always, you know, reaching out to each other, talking to each other, saying, how you doing? Yeah, you could do this. You could do this. And it's about that peer support, the, the connection of having someone next to you to say, listen, you're not alone through these difficult times. You're not alone through each step. That hill that you got to climb up for the next two miles, that's just a big incline. Listen, we're going to do this together because you're not going to fall short. So how many folks participated? Any idea? Um, We had 13, and uh, as we were walking, we actually did have people, you know, join us. Okay, well, that's uh, wonderful. Obviously, you have plans to do this every year, right? Yes, and this next year, we're actually going to change up the theme. We're going to keep it, you know, walking, but um, this time we're not going to walk to Albany. We're actually going to keep it in Ulster County, where we're going to walk 22 miles in Ulster County. How's your vet-to-vet office uh, doing, your new office up there? It has actually been very, very busy, especially what, what, what happened most recently, you know, with Afghanistan, where a lot of veterans were impacted, you know, mentally from it. And so our office has been that gateway for a lot of individuals to just reach out, as well as, the you know, for veterans that don't even know what to do or service members that don't even know what to do or who to connect with. So our office has been getting a lot more foot traffic. Our peers are doing an amazing job. And, you know, from each 
time they go out and outreach from each time they go out and just speak to the public it allows the community to know that they're not alone who they can reach out to if they need to get connected to someone so if anybody in ulster county wants to reach out to you how do they go about that gavin uh, so we've been using um, social media as one of those gateways to make sure that we get everybody connected. So we have our Vet to Vet page, which is the, the Vet to Vet of Ulster County on Facebook, as well as um, our phone number, which is 845-481-4004. And um, also we tell everyone, hey, you know, the uh, Hudson Valley National Center for Veteran Integration has their Facebook page too, and as well as our the website, the HV cvr.org website. Well, that's terrific. Thank you very much again, Gavin, for being a part of Let's Talk Vets, and uh, we wish you well. You're doing great work. Thank you. Yes, and I'll tell you one thing. You know, it's all about community. It's all about us working together, uh, speaking with one another, and creating a platform to create the message that, you know, so many of us are either experiencing or just want that support. So I, I have to say thank you for allowing, you know, myself and so many other individuals to actually talk about what's happening in Hudson Valley and New York State that allows everybody to know what's going on. So I'll say community is the biggest and greatest thing. So I have to say thank you to the community. Well, it's our honor to be a part of it all. So we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, sir. Our thanks this evening to Don Shaw, director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, Tom Brennan, Vietnam vet, golfer extraordinaire, author, volunteer, and all-around good guy, and Gavin Walters, our friend of the Ulster County Vet to Vet office in Kingston, New York. And, of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may talk about them on the air. You can drop me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. If you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak to someone, here are some numbers to remember. Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 to talk to someone. Send a text message to 838-255 to connect with a VA responder. Or you can start a confidential online chat session at veteranscrisisline.net forward slash chat. Don't forget, Let's Talk Vets is now available widely as a podcast. Until our next program, thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Something old, something new. Join me Thursday morning at 10 for a musical journey through the Iberian Peninsula and Latin America. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month, right here on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Thank you for all the ways you help WJFF Radio Catskill. Your support sustains the news, music, and local voices that make up WJFF. It's only possible because of your generosity. Help keep it going. Consider signing up to be a sound supporter to make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to WJFFradio.org. And thank you for supporting public radio in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania, WJFF Jeffersonville.
river to river, mountain to mountain. Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimony.